Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newham, and today we're talking about skincare treatments. We'll make sense of all the lasers, peels, and other choices for enhancing our skin. What does what? What works best? What about skin of color? And what can you expect for results in downtime? Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead you can use it to gain insight, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. Skin care. It could be an entire podcast by itself. If you're able to catch the last episode of this podcast, episode number 19, you recall that we broke up the large topic of skincare into two segments. During that episode, which was part one, we talked about skincare topical products, categorizing them by their mechanism of action and how they reduce or counteract the effects of aging and environmental skin damage. We also went over what a typical daily skincare regimen might look like. In this episode, part two, we will now discuss treatments for the skin. As you learned in the previous episode, there are many topical products that can help us progress towards the goal of having our best skin. However, they can only go so far. Today we're talking about taking things to the next level, primarily by utilizing either mechanical or energy-based treatments, and some chemical too. But do know the results of all of these treatments can be enhanced and prolonged by supplementing with the topical products we talked about previously. Generally speaking, what do all of these treatments have in common? They all produce some type of small injury to one or more layers of the skin and therefore trigger the healing process, which brings healthy new growth. And that's what we mean by rejuvenation of the skin. Yet the way each treatment modality goes about producing this irritation or injury differs for each, as does the target, meaning which layer of skin. Now, just like when we talked about skincare products, a similar problem presents itself with treatments, and that is the overwhelming number of options. In fact, it seems like every year there are several new lasers or other modalities that are on the market, and it may be hard to know what to do. There is always the temptation of trying the latest and greatest. Surely it must be the best if it's the newest, right? Well, as I think you can already guess, that's not always the case. So while you will rely heavily on your physician and skin care specialist team to evaluate your skin and recommend the optimal treatment plan for your goals, it's best to arm yourself with at least a basic understanding of what can be accomplished and how. There's a certain comfort in that knowledge I can tell you from past experience with patients in my practice. A quick reminder for you that here we are not talking about restoring facial volume or removing excess skin. For those topics, check out podcast episode number 10 on facial rejuvenation, lines and wrinkles, episode number 11 on injectables like Botox and filler, and episode number 12 on facelift. No, today we are discussing the skin itself. So let's briefly review our goals for achieving your best skin. We want three things, smooth texture, resilient tone, and a relatively even pigmentation. If we translate those to skin layers, or depth of treatment, texture would relate to the superficial skin surface. 
Resilient tone would be affected by deeper skin layers where the dermis and collagen live. And addressing pigmentation would be essentially in between these depths where pigment called melanin sits. So processing in that same order of layering, we want treatments that have the following resulting action. For texture, we want exfoliation, which is superficial. For resilient tone, we want promotion of cell turnover and growth, which occurs deeper. And for correction of irregular pigmentation, we want treatments which target melanin in the in-between or mid-skin layer region. Now, as you can imagine, not every treatment addresses each of these three. Some are better at one action than another, and it is helpful to take advantage of that since not everyone needs all three anyway. It's great to be able to customize a treatment plan in order to achieve each patient's goals more directly. So as we develop an organized way of thinking about skincare treatments, we will focus first on the three possible resulting actions we just talked about. And that for each resulting action, we can talk about the different physical property options which are available. By physical properties, we mean the modality. They might be energy-based, for example, laser, or they might be mechanical, for example, dermabrasion, or they might be chemical, like chemical peels. And again, by resulting action, we mean do they result in exfoliation, stimulation of cell growth, or treatment of pigment. But one thing you will realize from all of this, however, is a fair amount of overlap. Just like in life, nothing ever fits perfectly neatly into a single category. So let's start with exfoliation. Again, it's more focused on the skin's surface, which explains why the more aggressive form of exfoliation is referred to as skin resurfacing. In that extreme form, it essentially removes the outer surface of the skin, which then has to heal before nice results can be seen. There are a multitude of treatments out there focused on removing the outer skin buildup of dead or aged cells so that surface texture will be smoother and new growth can come from underneath. But they typically fall into one of three subcategories for physical properties or modality. Those are laser peels, mechanical dermabrasion, and chemical peels. If you're wondering how the treatment of a chemical peel is different from the topical skin products for exfoliation that we talked about in the previous episode, good for you. You're on the right track. The difference here is that today we are talking about a stronger chemical concentration that would be more intense compared to what you could use at home. The most common chemical peels you will hear about are glycolic acid peels and TCA peels. They can be used in increasing concentrations and are typically applied to the skin in the office setting. Gradually, they will remove the outermost layer of skin, which may take a few days to completely shed. At lesser concentrations, there may just be some light flaking, but when stronger, there can be more redness, inflammation, and true peeling. Other chemical peels you may hear mentioned include phenol peels and croton oil peels, which go deeper in the skin and are pretty intense. It would be difficult to do these without some type of anesthesia or topical numbing. They also may go so deep they permanently affect the pigmentation of the skin and can be hard to predict. Recovery may take a little longer as well. The next subcategory would be a mechanical peel. This essentially means dermabrasion, coming from the word roots derm, or skin, and abrasion meaning scraping. The older traditional technique of dermabrasion is kind of aggressive and would require some type of anesthesia. It's a bit like sanding the skin's surface, if you will. This results in bleeding and a fair amount of messiness during the healing phase. These days, it's rarely the first go-to for exfoliation, 
as there are so many other more controlled options available. A lighter version of this, however, is actually quite popular, and it's called microdermabrasion. It's a common component of a medical facial, and there is rarely bleeding with this because it does not go very deep. It can be a great pick-me-up with essentially no downtime. The skin feels pretty smooth after this, and it's a nice add-on treatment to other modalities. Or it can serve to prepare the skin to accept a topical product or another treatment more readily. Next to consider are laser peels. Lasers are a great tool in general because the depth to which the skin is treated can be more accurately programmed and controlled, much more so than either a chemical or mechanical peel. By the way, the word laser was never really a true word originally. It's actually just an acronym that stands for Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. It's a high-energy beam of very focused light with a single specific wavelength, and because of this, it will target a specific color, structure, or depth in the skin. For example, a CO2 laser targets water in the tissues. An erbium laser targets the color red, such as in tiny blood vessels. When the laser hits its target, the energy in this beam is converted to heat energy, which obliterates the target. So the lasers used for exfoliation are considered ablative lasers. An ablative laser means kind of what you might surmise. It ablates things. In this case, it heats and vaporizes superficial skin layer. A lighter laser peel can be used to prepare the skin for some other deeper treatment, but at a more aggressive setting, extensive exfoliation can be achieved. Essentially, it accomplishes that skin resurfacing we talked about earlier, and after healing, there is generally a smoother skin texture. Ablative lasers result in varying degrees of temporary redness, crusting, and peeling of the skin, so definitely more healing time is involved. That translates to more downtime, but also to more noticeable results. One way to shorten downtime, however, is to use a fractionated technique, which administers the ablative laser just in pinpoint dots aligned in a grid pattern and spares the skin in between the small dots. This in turn speeds recovery because the spared skin in between the dots can help grow new skin cells faster. And that means less downtime than with a full field laser, though perhaps not quite as dramatic results. Still, it may be preferential to someone who really cannot afford as much downtime with their lifestyle. What about the aftercare for exfoliation or peels? In general, there is a variable amount of time when the skin will be crusting and weeping, leading to peeling, and there is a noticeable redness afterwards. The more aggressive the treatment, the longer the period. Certainly, there are some very specific care instructions which would be given, depending upon the treatment type. But aftercare focuses on comforting topicals to reduce heat and to promote speedy healing. For those interested, Right after a resurfacing or exfoliative treatment could also be an appropriate time to apply a growth factor serum or platelet-rich plasma, known as PRP, to boost healing and to try to maximize rejuvenation results. And sometimes painless LED light treatments can speed up healing to reduce inflammation and redness as well. It's important to avoid picking at any skin that is flaking off, which could lead to scarring, and to avoid much sun exposure. Sunscreen is an absolute must once the skin surface is healed to try to avoid hyperpigmentation. Furthermore, any daily skin regimens that involve a strong vitamin C or a retinol should be avoided for at least a few days and then gradually eased back into the daily routine. Okay, moving on, 
We will now talk about treatments that have the resulting action of stimulating growth of cells and collagen production in that deeper skin layer to really get at the heart of skin rejuvenation, creating a tighter and more resilient tone of the skin. In general, these still require producing that controlled injury concept we talked about, but now targeting below the skin surface. Modality options at this level include mechanical-based treatments or energy-based treatments. Though some of the chemical peels we just discussed can go deeper in the skin to stimulate growth and healing, beyond just exfoliating. There's a little bit less control with these chemical peels, though, in terms of just how deep. Now, examples of mechanical-based treatments would be a dermal roller, skin pen, or some other type of micro-needling to create small, tiny wounds in the skin and stimulate healing with tighter skin. Results are limited, so multiple treatments are helpful, but downtime is not too bad. Next are the energy-based treatments primarily targeting this deeper skin level. They include non-ablative laser, radiofrequency, ultrasound, plasma, and light-based energy for photorejuvenation like intense pulse light or IPL and BBL. For all of these energy-based treatments targeting this deeper skin level, the mechanism of injury or irritation that starts the rejuvenation process is again largely thermal, meaning heat-related, ultimately stimulating the tissues to heal themselves in a tighter and more youthful configuration, forming new cells and collagen in the process. By the way, the non-ablative laser differs from the ablative laser we talked about earlier in that it spares the skin's surface because it targets more deeply. Therefore, the tightening of the collagen in the deeper or dermis layer from the laser's heat energy may not be so obvious on the surface. It doesn't typically result in skin peeling, so texture may not change dramatically. Well, hey, that means less downtime, which is great, but more treatments are required to achieve results, and it may not be enough as an isolated treatment to help badly sun-damaged or aged skin. Incidentally, the IPL-BBL type of light treatment I mentioned differs from the laser in that it utilizes a band of multiple wavelengths rather than a single wavelength which a laser would have. At a different settings, IPL and BBL are great for treating both redness and brown spots. There are many brand options for all of these rejuvenating treatments we're talking about, and most of them seem to have at least a moderate effect on skin tightening and resilience, though I encourage you to lend a critical eye to before and after pictures and have a realistic mind. None of these is going to produce a miracle, yet there can be some nice changes. Personally, I really think that laser is the gold standard overall, but that doesn't mean it's the best choice for everyone. The problem, of course, is healing and downtime, and it really comes down to patient tolerance. So here's where it gets interesting. As technologies have evolved, there are newer laser options which actually combine an ablative laser with a non-ablative laser, so you get the benefits of both. And on top of that, they can distribute it in a fractionated pattern. This is like hitting the laser jackpot. You exfoliate, stimulate collagen and cell growth, and heal faster. The splendid configuration has gained quite a bit of popularity, suiting many needs. An example would be the Cyton Halo, which we frequently utilized in my own practice. Before we move on to our final topic of treating pigment problems, what can we expect after the growth-stimulating treatments? For non-ablative or non-surface treatments that target deeper skin while sparing the surface, downtime will actually tend to be quite minimal, though there may be some short-term redness and swelling. If you are a makeup wearer, Makeup can be applied relatively soon afterwards. 
Sunscreen is still helpful, and strong topicals should be avoided for a few days. For those who tend to have reactive pigment problems, a skin lightener or pigment stabilizer can be a great addition as well. Being primarily aimed at collagen production and cell growth, it's interesting that results with these particular treatment modalities continue to improve and improve over time, even after the treatment sessions. There may be a little bit of swelling or puffiness right after each treatment, which could make it seem like the skin is already smoother and more taut, but that will really go back to baseline after a few days. Often it may be three to six months before someone can reliably assess their maximum results. And hey, what about the concept of pre-treatment? A lot of practitioners feel that if you're trying to get the most out of your exfoliative or growth-stimulating skin treatment, it can be helpful to pre-treat the skin with a good skincare regimen for a few weeks, including a retinol and a pigment stabilizer. This gets the skin in good precondition, so then the treatment modality can actually accomplish more rather than wasting its time on doing basic cleanup. By the way, while we were talking about pre-treatment, so to speak, Topical numbing could be utilized 30 minutes or so before the treatment begins to help with some of the more aggressive modalities, which might be hard to tolerate without. Now, let's round out our conversation by talking about the resulting action of improving pigment issues. As I alluded to in the previous episode about skincare products, pigment problems can be difficult to treat. Often the goal is to try to lighten up the irregularly dark areas so that they become similar to the remainder of the baseline skin color. And irregular pigmentation from age or sun damage, or even melasma after pregnancy, is a potential problem for all people of all skin colors. So while we're at it, let's go over the six classic Fitzpatrick skin types relating to baseline pigmentation. Which one are you? Fitzpatrick type 1 is very pale skin, often with blonde or red hair. It always burns in the sun and never tans. Type 2 is fair skin that burns easily and tans somewhat, but poorly. Type 3 is medium to light olive skin that tans, but after initial burning. Type 4 is dark olive to light brown skin, burns minimally and tans easily. Type 5 is brown skin, which rarely burns and tans darkly. And type 6 is dark brown or black skin, which never burns and always tans darkly. There isn't much available currently to restore pigmentation when it has been lost. But treatment to reduce darker spots can include light exfoliation peels and also non-ablative lasers, which are specifically targeting pigment color, typically in the Fitzpatrick type 1 through 3 range. In addition, intense pulse light, IPL or BBL, can be a great treatment for brownish discolorations. There's rarely any downtime, though it may or may not be safe for Fitzpatrick types 4 through 6. As always, caution has to be taken, and often it is wise to treat a small test patch of skin that is not very visible, screening for any adverse effects, before proceeding with full-on treatment. Quite often after treatment, the pigmented area may initially seem darker than usual, and then gradually flake away if successful. It's not uncommon to need several treatments to achieve satisfaction, and sunscreen is an absolute must in the future afterwards. Someone can spend a fair amount of time and finances to achieve a nice reduction in hyperpigmentation spots, only to find that a few days of summer sun have counteracted all that they've accomplished. 
But just like with skincare products, sometimes skin treatments that are aimed at lightening up irregular patches of dark pigmentation can later lead to the unexpected reaction of worsening of pigmentation problems. Supplementing with topical products we discussed in the previous episode number 19 may help with this and may prolong good results as well. And that leads to a few additional words about treating skin of color, so primarily Fitzpatrick types 4 through 6, with any modality for any reason, whether the goal is exfoliation or anti-aging or treatment of hyperpigmentation. With baseline pigmented skin, it's best to gravitate towards treatments which produce the least amount of inflammation, because treatments producing inflammation often have more risk of stimulating darker pigmentation or even problematic scarring in darker toned skin. Overall, less aggressive treatment is key when treating skin of color. And again, a hidden test patch can be of benefit, as is a consultation with a provider experienced in treating skin of color. We talked about a wide variety of treatments during this episode, but what are the generalized risks related to all of these skin treatments? Even though, fortunately, complications do not occur very often, they could include prolonged inflammation, meaning redness and swelling, pigment problems, both too light and too dark, external scar problems, burns or skin breakdown requiring prolonged healing, and rash or allergic reaction to any chemical that might be used. Almost all are essentially treatable, though I do have to say, on rare occasion, some of these can be quite resistant to treatment. A couple of additional things to note. If a patient has a history of cold sores, then they would be likely placed on pretreatment with an antiviral medication as any of the modalities we've been talking about could set off a flare of this problem. Secondly, as you might imagine, it's generally considered wise to avoid all of these skin treatments during pregnancy. Not only could there be congenital problems that arise, but skin sensitivity may be unpredictable during these nine months as well. Phew, we've covered a lot. In fact, at some point you might consider it helpful to listen to this episode again, just to solidify the new knowledge. But for now, I'll sum up with three final thoughts about skincare treatments. Number one, in general, despite all of the claims you may hear to the contrary, remember that the shorter the downtime in the healing phase following any treatment, probably the lesser the magnitude of result and the more frequent maintenance treatments will be required, plain and simple. There are patients who wish to have as much result from a single treatment as possible and are willing to undergo the downtime necessary for an aggressive treatment, which could be even a couple of months. But others prefer modalities which have much less downtime, so each person has to weigh their priorities. Number two, I often found the best skincare results come from a combination of treatment modalities, each targeting different things, though not necessarily having all done the same day. There are some fantastic results I've seen with combining different treatments, rather than focusing on just one. But here's where the expertise of your practitioner comes into play and is of great benefit. Number three, the modalities that we have discussed today, even in combination, have limits. They can rejuvenate the skin somewhat, but possibly not as much as you are thinking. So factor that into your judgment. And though skin treatments may turn back the aging clock, they do not stop it. Aging will indeed continue, yet at least it will have a new starting point after treatment. Overall, a focused consultation that is custom designed by your physician and skincare specialist just for you will typically yield the happiest outcome. And hopefully after listening to this podcast episode, you will have a little better understanding of those future recommendations that are made for you.
Well, hey, this episode concludes the first season of Plastic Surgery Decoded. The 20 episodes of season one were chocked full of important and interesting information about plastic surgery. Hope you enjoyed them and hope you will revisit them as needed to pick up some details you may have missed. Plastic Surgery Decoded podcast will take a break now and return with season two in the near future. So check back soon on the website for an announcement. Or easier yet, sign up through the website to be notified when the next episode is available. There you can also find a list of past and future episode topics. That website is www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. In the meantime, don't forget to share Plastic Surgery Decoded. Please spread the word. And as always, thank you for listening.